This is WMNF Tampa. Take a moment and have a look at your car. Does it spark joy for you? Does it even spark at all? When you're ready to say thank you and goodbye to your old ride, WMNF will be ready for you. Tidy up with a free pickup today. Go to WMNFcar.org for more. Here comes the sun, I say it's all right. Hello, and welcome to the Sustainable Living Show on WMNF Tampa 88.5, where every Monday at 11, we bring you a conversation with local experts on sustainable issues. Today's guest is Dr. Jarrett C. Daniels, and uh, he is the curator of the uh, Florida Museum of Natural History's McGuire Center for Lipidoptia and Biodiversity, and professor in the Department of Entomology and Nematology at the University of Florida, all the things I'm interested in. <laughs> Your hosts today are myself, Annie Ellis, and the lovely Kenny Coogan. And Bill is uh, doing the boards for us. Thank you very much. And uh, Irene will be in there taking your calls. So we want everyone to call today. I'll just go ahead and throw that out there. Uh, That's going to be at 813-239-9663 or send us an email at dj at wmnf.org. And Kenny? Yes, we're very excited. We are. Today we're going to be talking about butterflies, gardening for butterflies, and uh, maybe some endangered butterflies that are only found in Florida. But first, we have a special caller. All the way from the University of South Florida, (laughs) we have Craig Hugel, the director. Hi, Craig. He's doing such a great job. Craig. How are you guys doing today? Thank you for taking my call. Yes. Are you in a windy area? You sound like you're in a tornado. I'm in a Honda Fit. Can you yeah, close the window? <laughs> there are no windows open. Oh, it's wow. A noisy car, and I could only make this call while I'm running some things from okay. work today. So. Okay. So, uh, Craig, because of the quality of the sound, just very briefly, can you ta- talk to us about your upcoming giant event that's happening in October? Which we are excited about. Well, we're excited about it, too, at the Garden, and I appreciate the opportunity, guys. Um, well, you know, our, our festivals we do three times a year um, are really important to the USF Botanical Garden, and the fall one is often our biggest event. So, you know, over the summer, we had 8,000 people that showed up, and I would suspect we'll have that many or, or more this fall. It's... Um, Couple weekends from now, on October 14th, is my memory Thursday, right? And that Sunday, it's the Saturday Sunday, and um, we have lots of vendors, including Kenny with his carnivorous plants, and also yeah. the Rare Fruit Council. I'm hoping <laughs> the Rare Fruit Council will be there. Other folks selling uh, rare fruit trees, tropical fruit trees. We pretty much have every kind of plant represented by at least one vendor. So if people are into plants, I hope they are. Um, they'll find just about anything they would want to find someplace uh, amongst our 40, 50 vendors will have there this weekend. If someone wanted to find out about that online, how would they go about that, Craig? Well, uh, go to our webpage at USF Botanical Garden. Um, 
Botanical Garden. Well, yeah, USF Botanical Garden. So they'll they'll get to the uh, events and they'll be able to click on the fall festival icon and find out everything we've got posted up to now. Perfect. Okay, great, Craig. It, the sound is terrible. So we're going to go ahead and reannounce that. That's going to be, I just checked the date, and it is October 14th and 15th, and that's a Saturday and a Sunday. I believe it opens at 9 for, uh, for members, members. Uh, and then uh, 10 uh, for everybody else. Maybe 9.30 for Maybe members. Maybe 9.30, yeah. okay. And but then, uh, Craig is actually going to call next week. <laughs> Maybe in a better location. Let's hope. <laughs> I hope he doesn't do it again in the car. Yes. But so that's, if you want to know more about it, you can go to the USF Botanical Gardens website, and it'll give you a lot more info. Yeah. And they also have an active Facebook and Instagram. Very active. And I'm positive they will have plants for butterflies. Oh, it'll be so great. Yeah, there, there's going to be so many butterfly plants that it'll be, you, you won't have enough to uh, space in your car to take them home. <laughs> All right, so today's guest is Dr. Jarrett Daniels, and his lab works across many different landscapes from wildlands and farmscapes to roadsides and suburban yards in an effort to develop best insect conservation and management practices. Welcome to the program, Jarrett. Thanks so much for having me this morning. I'm really excited. We are too. Well, you know, we want to say all the shows are equal, but some shows are more equal than others. And I am very excited to speak with you. That's two plus signs on it. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, Jared, what is the McGuire Center for Lepidoptera and Biodiversity? So we're, we're a center within the Florida Museum of Natural History on the University of Florida campus. And we're the largest global hub for butterfly and moth research um, you know, anywhere in the world, and we have one of the wow. most active and largest collections of Lepidoptera, and also really active research from everything from, you know, genomics to conservation and everywhere in between. That's really interesting to hear from the whole world. Wow. We're big business. Yeah. <laughs> so but you're an entomologist by training, and you specialize in the ecology and conservation of at-risk butterflies and other native insects pollinators. And can you kind of summarize how Florida's native butterflies are doing with their conservation status? So Florida, um, like many other states where there's a lot of pressure on the habitats, a lot of development going on, uh, of course, you know, biodiversity is declining, you know, pretty precipitously across the globe. And Florida is also seeing declines in, you know, all overall biodiversity, but insects are also you know, trending downward, especially in South Florida, where there's a lot of, you know, development pressure and loss of habitat over time. And uh, this was a question I didn't know. I know we have a lot of butterflies that migrate to Florida, migrate through Florida. Do we have endemic butterflies, those butterflies that are only found in Florida? We do. We have, we have quite a few, um, including a few that are listed as federally endangered, such as uh, Bartram scrub hair streak, the Miami blue, and Shouse's swallowtail. And how could, how can we uh, help their population? I think the best thing to do is, you know, um, really try to, um, you know, learn more about them and, and really start at home where we can try to keep the species that are common now common in the future. So there's a lot that individuals can do in their neighborhoods, in their own yards, um, you know, around where they live to support butterflies, other insects, and just, you know, really um, 
enjoy the wildlife that we have around us. And uh, I've been mentioning this for several weeks, but I work for the IUCN Zanarthan Group, which is the anteater armadillo and sloth group. And all of those researchers... <laughs> that just cracks me up a lot. <laughs> they, they count them, and that's how you determine the conservation status, like if it's threatened or endangered. And they always are saying that it's very difficult to count Xenarthrins because a lot of them are nocturnal and they're hiding up in all trees. Right. So how do we count the native Florida butterflies. Is there a lot of butterfly nets involved? <laughs> Just a visual count, yeah. It, it's, um, so it can be done a number of ways, uh, but visual counts are fine. Butterflies are you know, really good to, to work on. They're big, they're visible, and um, I'm not a morning person, so they don't really become active till around 10 a.m. or so when the sun is, is fully up. They're not like birds that you have to get up at 5 a.m. or 6 a.m. to see. So they're they're perfect for somebody like like me that wants to get up, have a cup of coffee, relax a little bit, and then go outside. Oh, that's funny. You chose just the right uh, profession to go into. <laughs> I was just at the Tampa Audubon Society a couple weeks ago, and I know I, I helped them do a count once where oh, yeah. we kind of like get in a line, you're separated by feet, and then you like walk through and you kind of flush them out. Um, how do you how do you make sure all the butterflies are there? How do you make sure you count all of them? Are you just like looking at areas and then you like some multiply yeah. or something like that? Yeah. So a lot of the one of the more common ways of counting is is on a transect. So basically, you're just walking a a trail and you're um, often doing so with with a partner with a, in, you know in tandem, and you're counting the butterflies that you see uh, kind of on a 180 degree. Uh, window to your sides and to your front so you're not double counting things that are behind you and you're just kind of walking through that landscape and you're counting what you see and then you can generate a, a, a abundance estimate based on those numbers and that's what a lot of groups like the North American Butterfly Association and other groups do to um, you know relatively easily with um, you know an, a half hour to an hour hike uh, really get fairly good data. And so are those areas that are designated as spots by you guys uh, of where you want that to be counted? Uh, you know, like, is there like a section that you do and then you go to another section the next week or so on like that? It, it really depends on kind of what your goals are. But a lot of these are sort of organic counts. So you, you might, as, as an example, if you're a, a state park or, say, a, a zoological facility, you might set up, you know, set transects that you walk with your volunteers on a regular basis and the best thing to do would be to kind of set those up so you kind of go through different habitat types so you try to you know comprehensively survey what is what is actually there on your property over time okay we want to remind listeners that this is the sustainable living show coming to you from the studios of wmnf in tampa today we're talking about butterflies and insects of florida with dr jared daniels if you like butterflies and want to be part of the conversation, <laughs> give us a call at 813-239-9663, or you can send us an email at dj at org, and we will read it on air. And we, we know many of our listeners love to garden for butterflies. Absolutely. A lot of people, that's their, their specialty. I wanted to, you repeated this word a couple times, and I've never heard it before, so I wanted to reiterate on transects. What is that? So it's essentially just a um, uh, a linear pathway. So, like if you have a trail at a nature center or a botanical garden, it's just a, 
a trail that you follow, um, you know, a delineated trail that you follow to monitor something in the environment. Okay. Uh, so I just never heard it before. Yeah, it's kind of like a grid to me. Yeah, sure. it, made, it made sense. I think I knew what it was, but I just wanted, since I questioned it, I always think if I question it, that our listeners might be questioning it. Too. So, Jared, you, you mentioned a couple of the native species. Can you give us a rough estimate of how many of each of the species, you know, how big are their populations? Uh, so for Shasta Swallowtail, which was the only federally endangered swallowtail in the U.S. And, and is endemic to Florida. It's a large butterfly, similar looking to the giant swallowtail, which is very common. In 2012, there were only about four individuals <gasps> remaining in the wild. Oh so it was almost God. extinct. And thanks to a lot of work, uh, my lab included, but a lot of great partners, including, you know, state parks, um, U.S. Fish and Wildlife, and national parks, that those numbers are now north of are approaching 2,000 individuals in the wild, Thank so goodness. really trending the right direction because this would be a, a really tragic loss for Florida. It's an incredibly charismatic organism, and uh, it it is only found in southeast Florida in tropical hardwood hammocks. That butterfly is moving the right direction, and some of the other butterflies are maybe not trending quite as well. So the Miami Blue, which is oh, yeah. named after the largest city in Florida, was described around the Miami-Dade area is a little blue butterfly about the width of your thumb, um, and it has lost a lot of ground since the mid-1970s, and we have one of the largest known populations actually in the lab at the University of Florida. It is only remaining in the wild in a few locations to the west of Key West and a few low-lying uninhabited islands, so it's very precariously positioned for hurricanes, tropical storms, sea level rise, um, and we, we don't really know all the reasons why this butterfly has declined. So we're trying to rebuild those populations and rear it in captivity and reintroduce it back in the wild and try to, you know, ensure that it's around for generations to come. But it's, um, it's, um, it's challenging right now. You know, that's an interesting that you just said that you don't know why it's in decline. That's, that's the hardest part, right, to find that out and then go from there. But I was wondering, what are the drives of decline uh, for all the other uh, insects and butterflies? I mean, is there the chemical yard treatments or that sort of thing? Is that affecting it? Uh, so there's, there's a lot of drivers um, of decline, and there's actually really great scientific paper by a colleague of ours, Dave Wagner, and it uh, had a great graphic and it called Death by a Thousand Cuts because it really exemplifies the fact that it's not just one cause. I mean, habitat loss is certainly a, a major reason that a lot of species are declining, but, you know, overuse of insecticides, mosquito control, abatement, climate change, pollution, um, you know, light pollution for a lot of nocturnal insects. There's all these kind of you know, issues that are eroding kind of the core of biodiversity. So it's not a simple answer and it's not a simple rebuild of populations because there are so many different threats often that interact with one another. Well, that's interesting that you just said that was my other question about the mosquito treatment program. And so that's just one of the thousand cuts. Can you elaborate a little bit on that, uh, the light pollution? I mean, I guess it's broadening and that's why that's happening. Yeah, so you can imagine that if you're um, a nocturnal 
insect, a moth or, you know, any other insect flying around at night, that now having a world that's really illuminated affects kind of every aspect of your behavior in biology. And so there's, there's good evidence now that light pollution is really um, eroding sort of the nocturnal community of organisms and affecting their behavior and decreasing their population. So one very simple thing that we can do kind of like with sea turtle nesting is we can try to reduce the amount of light around our homes. Just, you know, turn, turn the light out. If you don't need it for safety or security, turn it out. And that little bit, if we do it in unison and collectively can have a pretty big impact. That's really funny. My whole neighborhood, the street, uh, a long time ago, about 25 years ago, they wanted to come in and put giant street lights in. And I'm like, no, we don't want that. And they told me that I was the only person that has ever, <laughs> uh, and my neighbors agreed with me because we like the ambiance, uh, that, uh, that I was the only person that ever did not want uh, illumination on our street because of the safety issue. And I'm like, well, we don't really have any safety issues. And so we all have our own lights for each of our houses and uh, so it's you know it's soft light and it's it's not harsh and I had never even thought about it because uh, it affects me it affects us as human beings but I never even thought about it is how it affects uh, insects now uh, that makes me wonder if that's we've been blaming the mosquito spraying for the decline of the uh, the um, the, what are the ones that have the little lights on their on their behinds? They're called uh, lightning bugs. Lightning bugs. Thank you. I couldn't think of the word. Uh, but the lightning bugs. Uh, we thought we we blamed it on that for their decline. But I wonder if it has a lot to do with the lights because I'm I, really thinking I that's think true. It, yeah, I think it does. And you know, mosquito control has gotten a lot better over the years too. So they're very direct and pinpoint where they spray. You know, but they are spraying an insecticide, which is you know does kill insects. So I think you know there's a lot of reasons why some of these um, organisms like fireflies, lightning bugs that we grew up with that were once common when we were young are now, you know, you have to go further out into the country to find them. Yeah, I noticed a lot when I was in Virginia, <clears throat> and I, we just don't hardly have any in, at all in the, you know, in the South Tampa area where I, uh, where I live. So I heard it's bad for owls, too, because the mice can see the owls when all the lights oh, are on. Oh, right. Wow. All right, so uh, Jerry, we have a couple of email questions for you. One is from Demi, and she would like to know, how is chemical yard treatment an issue for butterflies? Um, so that's a great question. So I guess it would be um, kind of what your yard maintenance company is actually doing. Are they just treating the lawn area, or are they treating more broadly on the shrubs and plants in your yard? Because if they are spraying more broadly for you know, herbaceous feeding or herbivore feeding um, insects, then they, of course, will potentially, you know, impact caterpillars and other organisms that will, you know, obviously eventually turn into butterflies. Uh, so, you know, our, our general recommendation is try to minimize pesticides. I think a lot of folks use too many and they overuse them in the landscape. So, they, there's a lot of good insects out there that are doing natural pest control free of charge for you, and you want to maintain that diversity. So try to try to use it only when necessary and always treat as locally as possible. 
Yeah, a lot of people, for well, they don't even know, but even if they're reminded, they don't realize about the predatory insects that are doing uh, that work that you're talking about for us instead of, you know, people have that instant gratification response when they see an aphid or a whatever kind of bug that they don't like or have a mosquito problem or whatever, and they go out and treat the whole as a broad system rather than, um, you know, realizing that if they wait for a few days, <laughs> those ladybugs and all these uh, lacewing uh, flies and wasps and different odds and ends are going to manage it for them. Jared, is and it's, a, it's a much better way, too, of, of sort of, you know, keeping those populations under control long term because pesticides are a very quick fix, but right. then those populations rebound. Then they blow up, too. Yeah. Is the main problem with herbicides and pesticides for the butterflies the caterpillar stage? Does it, it harm the adults? Uh, it's generally the the caterpillar stage because you have a plant feeding part of that life stage and most of the plant pests obviously are on plants so those chemicals are used broadly um, on you know yard landscaping plants or during nursery production to keep those pests under control and they can be very um, impactful to the caterpillars that are that are you know trying to feed away on those plants yeah, a lot of people don't think about that. They they want they have their vegetables in their yard or whatever. <clears throat> They're having um, pest pressure with uh, you know army worms or something like that that's getting it. And then they do uh, the BT uh, and they are treating all <laughs> of the caterpillars and not just that one. It's non-selective, and people don't put that together. They only focus on that one plant that they have. Exactly, and you know if you're a butterfly gardener. Part of your plants are in the landscape to be eaten. That's right. kind of the badge of honor of a butterfly gardener, right? You're supporting all the life stages of a butterfly. And there's still a lot of people. We have one of the more common questions we have people coming to the Florida Museum is they want to know what that caterpillar is on their plant because they often treat that caterpillar and they don't realize that, you know, a couple of weeks later, that's going to turn into a big, beautiful butterfly. Yeah. Yeah, it's sad. You're listening to the Sustainable Living Show coming to you from the studios of WMNF in Tampa. Today we're talking about butterflies and insects of Florida with Dr. Jarrett Daniels. If you want to be part of the conversation, give us a call at 813-239-9663 or send us an email at dj at wmnf.org and we will read it on air. And Jared, you have a phone call and you have a couple of emails. We'll take the phone call first and it is Jan in Oldsmar. Hi, Jan. Hi. Um, I have a question. I have been told that the uh, mosquito spraying that they're doing now is only BT, which supposedly only. is a larvicide. Now, um, I don't believe, I remember when I was a kid, they were using malathion and all kinds of things from the aerial sprays, but uh, am I correct that they're only using BT now? That's a that's a great question, Jan, and it's a hard question to answer because I don't exactly know what they're doing locally where you live, but um, they are increasingly using larvicide um, in in aquatic environments to try to ensure that they treat the immature stages before they become biting mosquitoes, and that's always a you know a great way of trying to control populations through time. If they are using any aerial spraying or truck spraying. And that is generally a broad-spectrum insecticide that's going to kill um, insects in general. But they're usually very targeted in where they apply those. So um, larvicides are not going to have really any significant impact on any butterflies or any non-target 
insects. Really? So they're not considered a larva? Yeah, but the, 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 they, they are, but they're not treating, uh, they're treating areas where mosquito larvae live, and those are aquatic environments. Well, and they go so, down my street in, uh, in the Hyde Park area, for sure. Yeah, then well, that's probably um, a, a different chemical that's being deployed. It might be a, a, a different type of BT, or it could be um, a different broad-spectrum insecticide, oh. and that is, that is meant as an adulticide, killing the adult mosquitoes that are flying in the area at the time, but larva sightings are meant to sort of control populations more effectively long-term. Hmm. Well, BT, you can get anywhere. You can buy it in any garden store. You, you can, and, and there's several different sort of varieties of BT. BTI is, is the larvicide that's being utilized, and BT is a general larvicide for uh, treating uh, terrestrial plants, um, and that, that will definitely kill butterfly and moth caterpillars if you spray it on your plant. Right. Well, I always get the, the dunks that they sell, you know. And yeah, and the, the dunks are fine because that's just been limited to the, you know, your bird bath or a water feature or, or body of water, and that's not going to affect any of the butterflies or moths around your neighborhood. One other question quickly while I have you on the line. When I was a kid, I grew up here. We had rhinoceros beetles around the lamppost every night. We used to catch them, and there were all kinds of, there were these weird little leaf hoppers that looked like thorns and things that were on bushes, and I don't see any of those ever anymore, and I rarely even see a big old grasshopper. Yeah, and I think that's kind of what we were talking about earlier. It's kind of the culmination of a lot of these, you know, effects, habitat loss, light pollution that, kind of erodes these populations over time. And that's a very common observation. Like, you know, you, you look out in your, your yard or around your neighborhood and you probably see less insects anecdotally than you did when you were young or 20 years ago. And I think that's a, a general trend and observation that many people have. Thank you yeah. so much, Jan. And uh, Jared, you have a couple more emails. Thank you. Thank, Thank you. you. Um, let's see, we have... Ellen in Gulfport, she says, in my yard, caterpillars end up being bird food. Yeah. And Jared, I bet that's okay. <laughs> <laughs> it, it, it is okay. I mean, that's part of the role that insects play is food for other wildlife. And, you know, if you, if you love, if you're a birder and you love having birds nesting in your yard, the bulk of their diet when they're feeding their young is butterfly and moth caterpillars. So it's, yeah. you know, it's feeding the wildlife, which is part of their role. It may not be something that we enjoy seeing and it's kind of the bane of a lot of butterfly gardeners. They don't want to have their, their fat little caterpillars eaten by birds or wasps. And, you know, they want to make sure everyone gets through to become an adult butterfly, but that's just not the way mother nature works. Yeah. Then it's too much. And then the birds aren't fed. So it's, it's just that balance. We just need more insects, don't we? Indeed. So uh, Jared, Ellen has a follow-up question and, we have a couple of questions about insects, which I'm assuming you'll be able to answer. Ellen adds, what about lubbers? Are they good for the environment? The lubber grasshoppers are, you know, a, a huge, very colorful grasshopper. They're often considered a, a, a pest in, in landscapes. They feed on a huge variety of different plants, but um, I, I still think they're, they're really beautiful and really interesting they make a great outreach animal talking to kids and getting them excited about insects so it sort of depends on how much you can tolerate and what type of damage they're doing in your yard but if you can sort of tolerate them or 
control them locally, um, then I would try to live with them as much as possible. When I stopped fighting them, I stopped having them. I don't mm-hmm. know what occurred, but uh, I, because I, I do have crinums and some different lilies that they would prefer. But yeah. once I stopped fighting them, I just don't have them anymore. It's interesting. All right, Jared, you got two more emails for now. But remember, <laughs> we love when you guys participate in the show. You can email us at dj at wmnf.org. All right, so uh, John says, this may be off a little off subject, but I have those blue uh, incandescent bees that live in my swinging chairs on the back porch. I constantly see them going in the chair, but I never see them coming out. And sometimes their feet are loaded with pollen, what are they doing inside there, and why would they pick such an obscure place to live? So, Jared, do you, do you know what uh, John's talking about? Uh, not off the top of my head exactly, but they, they, could, be, um, they could be orchid bees, um, and they, they probably are potentially uh, outfitting a nest if they're going back and forth with pollen. Uh, most native bees are solitary, and they, they don't, uh, maintain a hive or provide any parental care, but they do create a number of nests around in the environment. And what they do is collect pollen and amass it into a ball with saliva and nectar, and that's the food for their developing larvae to feed on. And so once they put that ball of pollen down, that that kind of food source, then their parental care ends. They're they're gone. They're just trying to make as many nests as they can before they die. So I want to ask you a question about that because that uh, I didn't know how that worked. And so if the butterfly go ahead and it lays its egg and then it puts the ball of pollen or does it make the ball of pollen uh, incorporated the into, into the nest? We're talking, about, we're talking about bees. bees. You said yes, butterfly. Yes. Oh, did I say butterfly? Sorry. The, uh, the insect, I guess I should say. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, so, so bees, uh, native bees, most of them make nests either in the ground or in cavities or twigs. And what they would do is they would create those, um, they would find a suitable area, and then they would bring bring back and amass that ball of pollen and then deposit it, and they would lay an egg on that ball of on pollen. It. And that would oh, be the, on okay. it. On it or near it, and that would be all the food that that developing larva needed to mature to become an adult bee. And But that's the only type of care that the adult female bee will provide. So you're saying on the ground in twigs and odds and ends like that. So that's probably something that we should mention to people uh, about uh, leaves and twigs and on the ground, about not raking, or what do you think about that? Um, so so for the ones that nest in the ground, you just need a little bit of bare bare earth around in your yard, and they will they actually burrow into the ground, and they can burrow... For some species, they can burrow pretty deeply, and they're going to make a, a series of tunnels and side chambers where they'll have their balls of pollen and eggs. And then those that are twig or cavity nesters, they may use a variety of things from old snags in your yard to, uh, you know, the perennial, the old perennial stems that you have in your yard that might be kind of hollow. Many of those will nest in those old twigs. Some, you know, probably the one most people are familiar with are like carpenter bees mm-hmm. that will often, you know, kind of eat away at the side of your fascia or on an old barn or kind of that 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 wood, and they can kind of become a, a nuisance pest. But they're, they're kind of drilling in uh, and creating a, a nest cavity in that, in that wood. 
the same thing they would do in like an old dead tree. And what you're saying when you say the word snag, you mean that's a dead limb on a living tree, correct? Yeah, or, yeah. So or, or a dead tree that's in your yard that doesn't create a, a safety issue. You know, mm -hmm. a lot of organisms love dead trees for nesting. And so if you, if you have a tree that died and it's not an eyesore or a safety issue, try to keep it around because so many organisms will will use that for, for nesting or for other resources. That's a great point because we are uh, in, in cities are so into having a perfect yard of what we think is a perfect yard visually and we clear out any kind of dead anything. So that's a great point that you just made. Yeah. Thank you. And, and brush piles are also pretty good. If you have a small brush pile and again, it's mm -hmm. not an eyesore, a lot, of, or, a lot of organisms will use that for for shelter, for nesting, um, including native bees. That's great news. All right, uh, Jared. CP in Palmetto, Florida says that they received several bee houses, you know, the ones that have like little bamboo sticks. Those little and, tubes yeah. in it, yeah. And they, he was wondering, is there a way to attract or enhance the attractiveness so the solitary bees move in? Or do you just uh, that's a question. there's a bee nip or something. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so those little bee hotels are are great. Um, uh, there's not really a, a way of attracting them. Just have patience. Uh, bees will will find them over time, and you will also probably notice that other organisms will find them. Spiders and wasps will also, you know, occupy those those cavities. Uh, one thing I would do, however, is that um, at least in Florida, if you have a bee hotel or a bee box, I would completely clean it out or replace it on an annual basis. If you keep it for more than a year, you can invite um, parasitoids or other issues for your native bee population. So just consider it a, you know, an annual expense and something that you can, you know, replace on a, on a given year. Yeah, they get mites and so on if you leave it in there, don't they? Yeah, they, they, they can provide some challenges or detriments to native bee populations. So just replace it on an annual basis. They're, you know, either just take out all the the bamboo and replace the bamboo or completely just buy a new box every year. And they're also very easy to make on your own. There's plenty of blueprints online you can download. Mm -hmm. All right. So, Jared, you have a caller, Anne from Tampa. Hi, Anne. Hi. Uh, I'm a reformed monarch raiser. Oh, so good. Reformed. <laughs> uh, I did a deep dive into researching it, and it, it really was fun. I had several friends who were doing it. And I think the most important points that I came away with were get rid of your tropical milkweed, only have natives, and uh, then uh, on into spread out and diversify and use other native plants for other butterflies because of OE. Uh, do you want to comment on this? <laughs> Thanks for that, Anne. I appreciate sure, you bringing a, it that's up. That's a really great uh, comment question, and um, I'm glad that you're so excited about diversifying your yard. So uh, within Florida, we kind of have an amalgam of different types of monarchs. We have the only non-migratory population in the U.S. and Southeast Florida. We have butterflies that come through the peninsula and migrate. We have butterflies that breed over the winter uh, in Florida and the Deep South. And a lot of that winter breeding is due to both climate, warming climate, but also the proliferation of the non-native tropical milkweed, which unlike other 
native milkweeds doesn't die back at any time. It remains vegetative throughout the year. And there's good evidence that when monarchs are migrating and they encounter that plant, some of them can actually fall out of migration, become reproductively active again, and breed. And this may sound wonderful as a butterfly gardener having monarch caterpillars in your, gar your yard in December or January, but that's also a time we have freezing temperatures throughout a lot of Florida, which can be very detrimental, of course, to monarchs. So the goal would be to reduce or eliminate tropical milkweed, replace it with native milkweed, uh, and long-standing breeding populations can also harbor outbreak levels of that protozoan parasite, OE, which can be very detrimental to monarchs as well. So our recommendation at the Florida Museum is that if you live north of Lake Okeechobee in Florida, try not to grow tropical milkweed, or if you have it in your yard, cut it back around Halloween and don't allow it to be vegetative until late February, but try to plant and source native milkweed whenever possible. And do definitely diversify your yard with a variety of blooming plants that will support both the monarch and many, many other of our wonderful native butterflies. People get really caught up in just supporting one butterfly, it seems. They do. They do. It's it's truly the gateway bug. It's the one that everybody <laughs> wants, wants to do, wants to support. And it's for a lot of people, it's a great entry into, you know, entomology in general and just becoming a, a wildlife gardener. So mm -hmm. it's, it's, uh, it's, it's doing a lot of good, but but rem remember that there are many, many other butterflies and other insects out there that need your help, too. Well, it, it got really distressing. I only have the natives, but I, it, the tropicals are just so abundant yes. other places. And uh, I had a neighbor who had them, and uh, my the, one, the monarchs that I was seeing, more and more of them had OE. And yeah. she didn't. She did not want to go ahead and euthanize the deformed ones by by putting chilling them, and uh, it just got worse and worse. And she tried to keep them alive, and of course they didn't stay alive. Mm. But it, I, apparently, if you touch the stuff, it it spreads so easily. We're loving them to death. Yeah. All right, thank you, Ann, for I, that. I understand. Uh, I have a question about that OE. Said I understand that it's a hundred percent infected of the monarchs in um, in Florida. Is that correct, or is that just a non-statement? It, it's it's certainly pretty ubiquitous, but um, and it's actually found in in all milkweed family butterflies, including the queen and the soldier, which also occur in Florida. But mm -hmm. it really only presents a problem when it gets to really high levels where it can cause death and deformity to the monarch. So, uh, you know, kind of kind of breaking that breeding cycle um, does kind of break that OE cycle as well. And that's why we want to ensure that throughout many portions of Florida, we don't have winter breeding of monarchs happening. That's great. All right. Thank you. Jared, you got lots of emails. One is from my neighbor down the road, Bev Keeney. She says, hi, Kenny. Uh, I've always been told that I should save my wine corks because they could make a potential habitat for bees. You place them in a frame and add it to a fence. Is that uh, creating the right place for beneficial bees? I do not want wasps. So, uh, Jared, have you ever heard of that? Wine, wine uh, corks? I, I haven't directly heard of wine corks, but it, it does make sense that it's an easy substrate for bees to burrow into. But realistically, you know, you can put up um, 
you know, a, a piece of untreated lumber, and that will also be nesting habitat for bees. So you can, again, have a, a, a brush pile, a snag, buy a bee house, build a bee house, uh, put up untreated lumber. All of these are going to potentially be resources where native bees uh, will will nest, the cavity nesting native bees. But there's no real way of like just having native bees without sort of also theoretically having wasps or other critters occupy those spaces too. But keep in mind that they're all really beneficial. A lot of the wasps are wonderful pollinators and they do kind of double service. Many of the wasps also are great beneficial predators. They're they're doing kind of the the trolling of your yard and picking off those pest insects to feed their young as well. So they're they're highly beneficial. All right. Sticking with the bee house theme, Marinello in Tampa would like to know, is there a good time to replace the bamboo in the bee house? Uh, she's always had it in a sunny place, but when they put it in a shady spot, it suddenly became very busy with activity. Oh, that's good to know. Yeah, so good time to replace is that um, I would sort of say maybe um, mid mid spring or early spring, and you can tell if those individual bamboos are occupied. the The ends will be sealed, oh. uh, and that they'll have that the good evidence that there's something inside them. So, if there's not an exit hole of those, I would keep those in the bee house because they're probably bees waiting to emerge at some point those that are unoccupied you could just clean out and replace on an annual basis but you'll need to do a little bit of sleuthing just to figure out uh, which ones to remove what about the temperature or the shade and sun situation she was talking about that's a good question so um, generally you know put it in a area where it doesn't receive direct sunlight that can overheat some of the areas, and you'll certainly see potentially more interest in those bee hotels if you put them in non-direct sun areas or slightly partially shady areas. Okay, thank uh, you. Bev would like to add, she has lots of friends that drink wine, and they're all going to save the bees now. <laughs> <laughs> We're contributing to the bees, not to their drinking. <laughs> All right, uh, Jared, you have uh, Richard from Tampa on the line. Hi, Richard. Hello, Richard. Uh, hey, Richard. Hi, guys. Great show as always. Thank I'm you. Person, I got, I'm not a bee person. I'm getting back to the butterflies. I see milkweed all the time, like in big box stores and non-native yes. you know, plant stores. How do I know? Because sometimes they don't, and sometimes they're not even labeled. They're just trouble. They just say milkweed. How do I know when I'm getting, I guess the, the tropical is the bad one, right? And I want the, the swamp milkweed is the good one. How do I can look at a plant and tell the difference? That's, that's a great question. So um, <laughs> unfortunately, oftentimes, as you mentioned, you can't necessarily trust the label. So I, I think what I would do is I would try to source your milkweed from a local nursery, a native plant nursery, a specialty nursery, and and maybe avoid some of the bigger box stores because the downside there is that you may not always get the right milkweed and there's also the fact that many of the milkweeds sold commercially could be treated with systemic insecticides, which could be very deadly to your monarchs. And so if you, you know, if you go to a nursery and you see the milkweed and there's absolutely no damage on the plant, there's no sign of insects on that plant, it's probably been treated with a systemic insecticide. And since you don't know when it was treated or what was used, you put that in your yard and a female monarch comes along, lays an eggs, and the caterpillar starts feeding, it could be pretty deadly to your caterpillars. So I would 
really try to shop as local as you can, support your local nurseries, your native plant nurseries, and try to buy from, from those sources instead. All right. That's great advice. Bye. Thanks, Richard. Um, so Richard mentioned there's swamp milkweed, but Jared, there's like over 70 species of milkweed native to North America, and then there's probably a lot more around the world, right? Yeah, there's there's a, a large large list. We have we have quite a few in Florida, but the ones that are most commonly for sale at native nurseries are going to be swamp milkweed, aquatic milkweed, and butterfly milkweed. So those are kind of the big three, and all of those are really good uh, host plants for the monarch, the queen butterfly, and also really good for attracting pollinators in in general. And, so, you know, reach out to your specialty nursery, reach out to a native plant nursery, support your native plant groups around, and many of them also have plant sales. Um, the Florida Museum has an annual plant sale in the fall, too, so uh, there's lots of opportunities to, to buy them, and they're also really easy to start from seed. Um, if you have a green thumb, it, they're super easy plants to grow, uh, so there's lots of ways, or if your friend, your neighbor has them, they also generally propagate pretty well from cuttings or from seeds. So, you know, find somebody that has them and ask for a little bit of supply from your neighbor. I used to think that the swamp and the aquatic was only for wet areas, but then I talked to Anita Comancho, the red, uh, the little red wagon nursery, and she said, well, it's for ditches, so it dries up, and it, then it's wet. So it, it, it manages in dry areas too, which was very interesting. I didn't realize that. Yeah, they're, they're not super drought tolerant, but those also make really good container plants. So if you don't have a big garden oh. or you want to have a little patio garden, somewhere where you're going to, it's going to receive some regular irrigation. It doesn't have to remain wet, but it needs regular water. Okay. All right, Jerry, we got about three more questions and then we're out of time. So we got a beautiful picture of a little bee hotel from Lucky in South Tampa. Aww. And then Pete in Indian Shores says... Um, he has these little uh, white buggers, no seams, and they make them all the. They make their way all the way up to his condo. Do these little faint creatures serve any purpose? Is that a white yeah, so fly? The, yeah, Jared. What's a no seam? So it's a little biting midge, and it's a little oh. fly, and and it's um, they're super annoying. But um, <laughs> you know, like like all insects, they they something eats them. So you know, people rail on mosquitoes and other biting insects, but they they make up a lot of the biomass that's out there and a lot of organisms do feed on them. So even though they might be incredibly annoying to us, they, you know, all insects play some role in the environment. All right. So Jer thank you, Jared. We uh, advertise our upcoming shows on our Facebook page, Sustainable Living. And we mentioned that you are a professional nature photographer and author of many successful field guides gardening books, and general interest titles on butterflies, insects, and wildflowers. And Jane would like to know, what is the secret to photographing butterflies or other tiny organisms? Because I, I have a very nice cell phone, and even if they're staying perfectly still, it's, tough, it's isn't very it? tough. Yeah, and yeah it, that's it, a great question. loses focus a lot, too. So, so I would say kind of two things. One is have patience, because you're not going to get close to things very easily. You need to sneak up on them fairly, fairly slowly. And, and another good pointer is that insects, uh, they're very, butterflies and other insects are often very visual 
uh, they're, they're looking out for predators. So always approach sort of kind of down the sun. Don't let your shadow cast onto those organisms because oh. that will spook them and they'll fly away. And then you can also, you know, go out in, in times when the temperatures are fairly cool. A lot of butterflies will not be super active when uh, it's cooler temperatures are waiting to bask and warm up. And so those are good times often to get closer to organisms that you might naturally be able to. So patients approaching kind of at low angles and don't let your shadow cast on t- onto them. And so to use the environmental conditions to your benefit, you know, cooler temperatures mean they're less active and you're easier easier for you to approach them. And then the last thing I'll say is that when they're feeding like at flowers, they're often kind of distracted. So you can oftentimes get a little closer to them when they're they're kind of taking on some activity like feeding. All right, so Jane's question made me think of a question. I have a lot of plants in my pool area. I have screen doors in the lanai. Literally daily, a butterfly sneaks into that pool area. Wow. And I have my big old butterfly net. So I spend a lot of my time... <laughs> Because you're growing your for sale flowers. Yeah, capturing the butterflies and releasing some. So my question is, when I try to track or trap a butterfly, they're very flighty, but they also it also seems to me that they have no idea where they're going. (laughs) Oh, random. Yeah. So has there been any research on the brain capacity or cognition of a little butterfly? Oh, that's so interesting. Because they're just like. Random. I just they don't just, know. Yeah, I just flit. don't know how they're yeah. surviving. They flip, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So there, there is, there is um, research on a, a lot of insects, um, and and butterflies do have the ability to learn, um, and wow. um, and so they're they're not as sort of dumb little organisms as we might um, you know suspect that they are. But when they like you mentioned, like they often sort of fly very frenetically when they get into your lanai and that's probably because they're they're hitting the screen they're just they're trying to um kind of avoid something that they're not used to they're they're bumping into it it's creating some alarm and they're kind of rapidly trying to escape and avoid and usually butterflies like if you ever see like a bird or or you take a swoop at it with a butterfly net it'll fly very erratically and very quickly away it's kind of a natural defense mechanism for the butterfly that's interesting. So he's probably seeing shadows casting from the rib, from the ribs of the um, the panels that hold the screen. I bet that's what it is, or uh, the trees above too. So Jerry, we got about four minutes left. How can let's talk about the uh, endemic butterflies, or I guess we could talk about the migrat the migratory butterflies too. What's like a single thing that the listener can do to help improve their populations? plant plants or stop using pesticides or is there something we're missing? So I think the best thing we can do since we know that habitat loss is a a huge driver of decline is try to build up the resources in and around where we all live. So in your yard, in your neighborhood, diversify your yard, put in a variety of different flowering plants, try to include natives when possible, but there are a lot of non-natives that are also really good and when you when you do that, then kind of buy a good field guide, learn what butterflies you see in your yard, and then you can specifically target the larval host plants for the butterflies you know are actually going to be in your yard. And then your landscape becomes a true little habitat to help support butterflies and other wildlife. And if we kind of 
propagate that around where we live, we, we, we make up just a little bit for all that loss of habitat and resources. So it really does start at home and trying to make sure that all the landscapes that we, we live in and see on a daily basis, we can, we can do better with those spaces. I've heard those called as uh, being oasis, uh, yes. uh, making a plant oasis for <clears throat> our wildlife, which I love the way that sounds. Yeah, and the nice thing about it too is it, get, it gets a great opportunity for you to reconnect with nature and to go out and just see all the multitude of different organisms that actually occur in your yard or in your neighborhood. And you'll be amazed at what you see, all the new creatures that you discover and and then you can track that like through iNaturalist, take photos and upload those images. And it, it really becomes, um, you know, pretty uh, addictive over time. And like you said earlier, it might be the, uh, the opening, you know, for someone to then broaden their thoughts about why the insects are there and to be less aggressive towards them and, and yeah. understand that it has a, a, you know, a big part of the birds uh, feeding. Or- or stimulate your neighbor to do the same thing. Maybe your neighbor isn't quite as jazzed about <laughs> doing that, but when the, once they see your yard and how beautiful it is, then they want to play a role. Yeah. All right, Jared, I guess this will probably be the last question. I've been interviewing a lot of people like 4-H people and FFA advisors and agriculture teachers, and the general age or the average age is like 55 or 60, and they just don't have any new people coming in. Oh. And I was wondering... Are you getting a lot of applicants in like college or for graduate degrees who are interested in butterflies or people phasing out? Like I know there's a lot of hobbyists and backyard growers, Mm -hmm. but are there, is it competitive to become a professional butterfly researcher? Like it's in the science industry. Yeah. Yeah. I think there's a lot of, um, a lot of interest. We have a lot of incoming students that are, that are interested in one way, shape or form in insects and Butterflies, and I think butterflies also are a really good jumping off point for just general careers in natural history and conservation. Uh, and insect conservation and biodiversity conservation is is really expanding. So there's there's a lot of interest at the student level. That's thank, great news. Thank you so much. Today's guest was Dr. Jared Daniels, the curator of the Florida Museum of Natural History's McGuire Center for Lipidoptera and Biodiversity. Thank you so much. And we thank Irene for taking your calls and Mr. Bill Grace for working the boards. If you Go ahead. You go ahead. Okay, I'll do it. <laughs> if you enjoyed the show and our weekly content, please go to WMNF.org, donating through the tip jar, and directing your donation to the Sustainable Living Show. Remember, in two weeks is our fundraiser, so you can start that now and help us meet our goal. We thank you for your help in supporting the show at, for and our WMNF station. So stay tuned. In the next hour, you'll hear WMNF Community Speaks with Mobili. Make sure to tune in next Monday morning at 11 for the next Sustainable Living Show. We'll be talking about uh, our WaterWise Award, which will the winner will be announced. And I am Kenny Coogan. I'm Annie Ellis. And if you... <laughs> I have this written down. Um, if you're wondering what to do for someone to save the world, look in the mirror. This is WMNF Tampa. Bye. <laughs>